We turn in our Bibles this morning to the Epistle of Jude. We said last time that we'll be taking a slight break from our series in the book of Hebrews. We're looking this morning at the Epistle of Jude. And we are going to be reading the first four verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And from this passage, I want to speak to you this day on the subject Contending for the faith. Contending for the faith. It seems that many a Christian is oblivious of the dangers that pose a threat to the spiritual health and well-being of the church of Jesus Christ and the progress of the gospel in our time. And I don't think that's a casual statement. Recently, a well-known pastor of a megachurch made the following claim, which was rather startling. He said this, and I quote, The Christian faith does not rise and fall based on the accuracy or the inaccuracy of 66 ancient documents that we call books of the Bible. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual Jesus of Nazareth. No, end quote. Now, if you listen to that statement, it sounds good if one is not critical, but that is a dangerous statement. Because that statement undermines the very thing that our Lord Jesus stood for. In fact, there cannot be true belief in the person of the Lord Jesus apart from the Word of God. We'll demonstrate that somehow in this study this morning. Sometime before that, this very same preacher made the claim that we should not tell people, he says, when we are preaching, we should not say to people, the Bible says. And I want to say to you, beloved, that this is representative of what obtains in popular mainstream Christianity in our time. Erosion of confidence in the inspired, authoritative word of God. And my friends, sit loosely with respect to the Bible being the true, divinely inspired, authoritative word of God. Go softly on the divine inspiration of the word of God. And what you have coming, you, well, it's evident as we see it in our time, you get what we might call a quote-unquote Christianity that is insanely woke. So-called Christianity that 
is unblushingly sympathetic toward tenets of Marxist leftism. A Christianity that is at home with godless progressive ideologies all in the name of social and cultural relevance and respectability. We have today, my friends, in the church, coming from many pulpits, what is nothing but political correctness. And all of this is stemming from the fact that many a preacher of the word of God today sits loosely by the scriptures, the Bible, as the inspired, authoritative word of God. And I'll tell you this, one of the more serious manifestations as I see it today, and it, it's no secret, let me say this, that our government, this present government, is not, we would say, is not sympathetic to that which is Christian. This party, this government is fiercely hostile to everything that spells biblical Christianity. And what I find very alarming is this, that you have professing Christians and this needs to be said, you have professing Christians who, you, you might hear very, very soon to come, you'll hear them say, well, we have the first female judge, the first female black judge, and the tragedy, my friends, we listen in past weeks to what was being said, and here is an individual who cannot say what a woman is, and you know the tragedy, that's not so much a tragedy. What is really the tragedy? What is the tragedy? The tragedy is this, that there are many, many Christians who uncritically embrace individuals who are hostile to the gospel we profess. On the days of the Apostle Jude, Jude as it is in our time, the Christian faith was under siege. It was under attack by those who were inserting their humanistic ideas and agenda into the church. These people, we would say, in today's way of speaking, were on a path of deconstructing and redefining what it is to be a Christian. Jude, in writing the believers, states in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And there are three simple questions we want to answer this morning. First of all, what is the faith for which we are to contend? As used in scripture, the word faith is used in at least two ways. When used without the definite article, the faith means personal subjective belief or trust in God. Accompanied by the article they, the expression the faith refers to that body of scriptural doctrinal truths to which believers in Christ subscribe by way of belief, proclamation, and practice. It was this body of doctrinal truth Paul had in view when he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, concerning the fact that some will depart from the faith. And when he testified toward the end of his life and ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have kept the faith. 
It was to this body of doctrinal truth that the Apostle Jude was referring when he issued the call here in verse 3 of our text for believers to what he calls contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The question is, what does Jude mean when he says we are to contend for the faith? What does he mean when he says contend earnestly for the faith? Well, to begin with, he doesn't mean we are to be contentious and cantankerous about the faith. He's not saying that we are to get into arguments and fights over the faith. Positively, what he means is this, that we are to fervently and vigorously champion the faith. We are to aggressively, assiduously strive to guard its purity. And if ever a time we need to do that, it is now. Why? Because in the church today, there is, my friends, the intrusion, the infiltration of all that is inimical and hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to untiringly labor, endeavoring to ensure that it's not in any way tainted and compromised by that which is sinful, by that which is worldly, by that which is heretical, is what Jude is saying. The Greek word for contend, the verb form there, the verb that is used there is is in an intensive form, And it carries the idea of strenuous, aggressive activity. It's a word that was used in connection with struggling, athletes struggling, agonizing, as the word literally means, to win a contest. And the point Jude is making, beloved, is this, that as Christians, when it comes to championing the faith, We are to do so with energy. We are to do so with vigor. We are to do so with the the vigor, with the energy of wrestlers, boxers who contended with an opponent in the arena. That's what he's saying. Now regarding this faith for which we are to contend, Jude, Jude tells us that it was delivered to the saints. And the question becomes, who delivered it? That's not hard for us to figure because we can say clearly that the Lord Jesus delivered it. The Lord Jesus delivered the faith to the saints because Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 says concerning the gospel truths of our great salvation. Here's what the writer says, that it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attended to us by those who heard Through the ministry of his apostles, our Lord Jesus delivered the faith, that whole body of revealed doctrinal truths of the saints, to his people, to his church. That was why, as Paul wrote to the various churches, for example, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, he could state that he was delivering to them the traditions, those handed down teachings he had received from the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, verse 23, For I have received of the Lord Jesus that which also I delivered unto you. The faith was delivered by our Lord Jesus through his apostles. Similarly, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel I preached unto you, which gospel you received, by which gospel you are saved. 
And that the faith, that sacred deposit or teaching that has been delivered to the saints, what does that mean? What does it mean? The very fact that this has been delivered over to the saints, the question is, what does that mean? It attests, beloved, to the wonderful, to the blessed truth that God has not left us without witness. It says to us that as Christians, that as a church of God, it's not left to us to devise and define our own version of Christianity. That is very important because that's exactly what is happening in our time. People today are actually concocting, they are devising a Christianity of their own making. A Christianity that suits them. A Christianity that makes no demand of them in terms of holy, godly living. It says to us that it's not left to us to determine what constitutes truth and what constitutes error and falsehood. The fact that the faith has been delivered says to us that we are not left to do our own thing. It's not left to us to work out our own ideas as to how one comes into a saving relationship with God. It's not left to our private subjective notions to figure out what makes one a Christian. The fact is, everything that you and I need to know along these lines is amply set forth in Holy Scripture, the Word of God, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And this is what constitutes the faith that has been Delivered to the saints. That is why we read in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what the Apostle Paul says: All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, he says, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is why we don't need outside so-called revelations. That's why we don't need people getting up and saying they have a word from God. That is why we don't follow impressions and feelings because the faith has been delivered to the saints. The faith has been delivered, which means that we are not left at liberty to concoct our own Christianity, our own word from God. Now, the important thing to note here is that Jude tells us concerning this faith for which we are to contend. Notice what he says, that it was delivered to the saints. Here it comes, once for all. That is to say, it is a fixed and final deposit of divine truth which needs no amendment, which needs no improvement. That this faith has once for all been delivered to the saints is evidenced by the fact that it has been inscripturated. Well, what do we mean by that? It means this, that it is written as Holy Scripture and that it presents itself as the bona fide Word of God, inspired Word of God, the God-breathed Word, the product of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21 for holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that explains why it was that in the wilderness of temptation, as many as three times as Jesus warded off the devil, notice three times, as many as three times, he responded, it 
is written. It is written. What was he doing? He was appealing to the very thing that this preacher says we don't rely on absolutely. Scripture. It stands written. That's the idea there in the Greek. Perfect tense. It is written. It stands written. The word of God is final. The word of God is fixed. The psalmist says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. What that means, my friends, is that culture cannot define what is truth. Culture cannot define what is moral. Culture cannot define what is right and what is good. It is the word of God that is the final arbiter of truth. It is the final authority of what constitutes error and sin. And that's why we talk about these things so vigorously. You take, for example, the trends in our schools today, this deadly, dangerous move today to corrupt the minds of our children. And I'm asking the question, is there not something fundamentally wrong with parties, with positions, which adopt these principles? And the question is, should Christians take sides with these issues. So in view of this once and for all, deliver of the faith of the saints, that it therefore means that any purported word from God today, as we said earlier, that does not square, that does not line up with this book, the Bible, the word of God, is poison and is to be shunned like the plague. We get our authority for conduct straight directly from God, from his word as recorded in the Bible. And that needs to be championed. That is why in that great hymn, O firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word, the songwriter rightly asks, he says this, what more can he say than to you he has said? What's the point? The faith delivered to the saints is fixed and final. It has once for all been delivered. And here is where we define and defend truth. This brings us to our second question. Why is there the need to contend for the faith? There's need for us to contend for the faith because there are forces that seek to undermine and destroy our faith. And any well-thinking person, any well-thinking Christian looking at the word of God and looking at what is being promoted today and looking at what many professing Christians are holding to today and what many preachers so-called of the gospel are proclaiming today have to say that something definitely is off. There are forces that seek to undermine and destroy the faith from time immemorial. This has ever been the case. 
You see, inspired by Satan and his minions, evil men, haters of God, despisers of his truth, have endeavored to suppress, if not stamp out, that which spells Christ, his gospel, and his church. We see this in the numerous instances of persecution throughout our world. Today we continue to see this opposition, this hostility toward the faith in the systematic censoring and cancelling of ideas and expressions that are expressly and manifestly Christian. And I want to submit to you, beloved, that as dangerous as these threats are, yet they come nowhere near to the kind of danger posed by imposters of the faith who secretly infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ or even rise within the ranks of the church. For like an undetected malignant cancer that wreaks havoc in the body, so are those who work their way into the church to inject in it their evil, destructive agenda. Jude writes of such individuals here in verse 4, where he says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago are designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into lasciviousness, into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul sounded a similar note of concern, a similar note of alarm in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He solemnly warned them, you recall in Acts chapter 20 verses 29 through 31, of those who would come not from the outside but from within the church. He says this to the Ephesian elders, Acts chapter 20, 29 through 31, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Here in our text, Jude is saying that there's need for believers in Christ to contend for the faith because they are false professors of the faith who are ill-intentioned toward the church. May I suggest this to you? They're in pulpits. They are in pulpits. And the things they push, the ideas, the ideologies they push, are nothing but hostile to the gospel. Today, the big thing in many pulpits, in many churches, in fact, it's actually wrecking some churches. There are cases of churches growing. Why? Because people leaving those churches to go into more biblically preaching churches and in those pulpits, my friends, where people are leaving those churches, what they're being what they're being taught, what is being propounded in those places is what is known as critical race theory. That's a big thing in our time. There's a big emphasis on this matter of race. And let me say this, there's only one race. This is the human race. 
And there are people today, my friend, who are preaching a gospel which is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are preaching what they call a black gospel. They are preaching what, they, what is called a social gospel. They are preaching what is known as a gospel of this and a gospel of that. And there's nothing that has to do with the biblical gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a big talk today about social justice. And let me say, my friends, listen, we understand what they are saying, some of what they are saying. The truth is there is need for justice at a social level. But let me say this, that is not what the gospel is essentially about. The gospel is not essentially about social justice. The gospel is about, first and foremost, satisfying the righteousness of God, the just righteousness of God. First of all, being right with God. Let people be right with God. Let people come to faith in Christ. Let people repent of their sins. And let me suggest this, they should, if they are understanding the gospel correctly, Live as they should. They will love one another. They will not subscribe to any notion of racism. They will not subscribe to any notion of injustice. But here's what I'm saying. Those things are not the fundamental, essential core of the gospel. Jude is saying, look. We need to contend for the faith because there are infiltrators in the church. There are people in the church who would inject their humanistic ideologies, their humanistic agendas, their self-seeking agenda into the church in order to preach another gospel. Such people, he suggests, are alarmingly dangerous. And why are they dangerous? They're dangerous because, notice first of all, they're often undetected. They're often undetected. They operate surreptitiously, covertly, in secrecy. Note what Jude says of them. He says there in verse 4, they have crept in unnoticed. They are professors in seminaries. They are pastors in pulpits. In fact, may I suggest to you, some of them might even use terminologies of reform theology. Many of them might even claim to be reformed, but here's the problem, here's the tragedy. They're preaching a gospel that is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's hard if one is uncritical, if one is not discerning, one readily listens, one readily embraces them. Why? Because their names are huge, they are popular, they write books, they teach in seminaries. But oh my friends, they are deadly and dangerous to the gospel. As to why they creep into churches, one man suggests that they do so because they are creeps. More seriously, I would say they do that because they are up to no good. They creep in unnoticed because they well know that their sinful, self-seeking agenda cannot stand up to the light of the word of God. So what? They have to move slyly. They have to move secretly. 
It is the way of false preachers and professors of the faith, my friends, to move in secrecy. Peter speaks of them in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, how that they secretly bring in destructive heresies. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Secrecy. He wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 6 of those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. That's their mode of operations. And by the way, in recent times, if you're following the trend, more and more we hear of pastors, even prominent pastors, and I take no pleasure in announcing this, but you know, many, many are being exposed in terms of their carryings on. Sexually, financial scandals, sexual scandals. With sinful intent, they come in the garb of religiosity using Christianese. Using the language of biblical orthodoxy, they look and sound like the real deal, which explains why they often go undetected. Why it's so difficult to spot them, and that is precisely why they're so dangerous. Secondly, they're alarmingly dangerous, not only because they're often undetected, but notice what Peter says, or rather Jude says. He describes them in this fashion. He says they are ungodly. They are ungodly. Also verse 4. Generally speaking, we would say they are ungodly because the teachings to which they professedly subscribe do not in any way affect their lives. In the language of 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, they have the appearance of godliness but deny the power of it. Now Jude specifically cites in verse 4, if you look at verse 4, Jude specifically cites in verse 4 the ungodliness of these infiltrators of the church, how their ungodliness was manifested. And first of all, according to Jude, their ungodliness was manifested in their distortion of the grace of God, their distortion of the grace of God. Notice what he says. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. That is to say, they misuse, they misrepresent the doctrine of salvation by grace uh, to mean that one can live as they please, that one can give in to the loss of the flesh while professing to be saved. Isn't that the very thing we are seeing in our day today, my friends? People can engage in the most rank forms of sexual immorality and still claim to be Christian. And once again, I think that it becomes more serious. If that's not bad enough, it becomes more serious when professing Christians can get used to the idea it doesn't bother them, it doesn't faze them. It's like we, we come to the place today, you see, where even when it comes to our politics, even when it comes to our general way of life, biblical values really don't matter. Matter. 
Jude says they are ungodly. And the Bible says categorically, if one is living in those ways, one will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. And the true believer in Christ, the one who would take the faith of Christ seriously, cannot in any way sympathize or show any kind of solidarity, any kind of support with systems, with policies that embrace these ways of life. Second, the ungodliness of these infiltrators of the church was manifested. It was manifested not only in their being ungodly, their distorting the grace of God, but it was manifested in their devotion to a life of debauchery. Sensuality, the gratification of the flesh, which among other things would, it, which would include illicit sexual pleasure, was their way of life as suggested in verses 7, 8, 16, and 18. It won't take time out to look at those verses. But in verses 7, 8, 16, and 18, we see the extent of their sensual indulgence. Jude even goes on to say, that they do so without shame. And then third, the ungodliness of these infiltrators of the church was manifested in their denial of the lordship of Christ. According to Jude, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They may or may not have verbally done so, but they certainly did by their works. Because the word of God says in Titus chapter 1 verse 60, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Paul goes on to say there, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. My friends, look at the state of Christendom today. Look at what passes for Christianity today and see if these are not the very manifestations of so-called progressive Christianity. The distortion of the saving grace of God. People indulging in rank sexual immorality even while claiming to know Christ as Savior. And yes, their denial of the Lord Jesus as they attempt to deconstruct and redefine biblical Christianity. And it's precisely these things that Jude is saying that make false professors of the faith so alarmingly dangerous. But the fact is, where there are deviant perspectives of God's saving grace, then what happens? Sin is soft-pedaled. Sin is given license in the lives of professing Christians, and this effectively results in a denial of Christ's lordship. And when Christ is denied, my friends, what's the end result? An entire congregation is weakened and destroyed. And given this real threat, this Real threat, we as Christians, Jude is saying, are urged, we are urged to contend earnestly for the faith. We are to contend for the faith. We are not to be passive. People get excited about the things they want to be excited about. They get passionate about the things they want to get passionate about. But when it comes to the things of Christ, they are as lukewarm and lame and limp as can be. Let me say this. If you look around at what's happening in our society today, and I'm sure you have been looking, and I'm sure you feel that way, it makes you feel how? Sick. And I tell you, we are in a very bad way. We are in a very bad way. We are 
at 180 miles an hour or more, fast approaching to destruction, divine judgment. And that is why I'm saying, my friends, if we take our Bible seriously, if we look at trends that are taking place, if we look at what is happening in our society, what is being promoted, the question becomes, how can Christians, and I'm not here this morning, note you, I'm not here this morning to preach a political message. I'm here saying, my friends, that we need to take a close look at the Word of God, and we need to ask ourselves, can we honestly say that what is being propounded, what is being enacted, what is being legislated is something that Christians should even indirectly support? Somebody says, don't go there, it's offensive. I know, but the truth must be told. So this brings us to our third and final question. How do we contend for the faith? How do we contend for the faith? Remember, we're not going to be contentious. We're not going to be cantankerous. But we're going to be passionate. We're going to be vigorous. We're going to be aggressive. Because notice what he says there. We are to contend earnestly. Now, the word earnestly is not in the ESV. It is in some version. But the reason it is translated, the word earnestly appears there. Because the verb, the Greek verb, is in its intensive form. It is prefixed by a preposition, and whenever that happens, the verb, the action is intensified. What he's saying there is that we are, we are not just to contend for the faith, but we are to do so assiduously, we are to do so passionately, we are to do so vigorously. We can't be laid back. And we contend for the faith, first of all, by clinging tenaciously to the cardinal, distinctive tenets of the historical, biblical, apostolic faith. Why are we going to be earnestly clinging? Why are we going to be so earnest in clinging tenaciously to the historic, apostolic, biblical faith? Because lying at the heart of that for which we are contending, beloved, are the ultimate issues of truth and error, of light and darkness, of life and death, of hell and hell, hell and heaven. We see in various portions of scripture this call for earnestness with respect to cling tenaciously to the cardinal tenets of the faith. Here, for example, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15, we hear him saying to the Thessalonian Christians, he says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I have something to proudly declare this morning. Ready to hear it? I'm a traditionalist when it comes to the word of God. People don't like that word today. They say tradition, tradition, tradition. Take your Bibles, look at the different times that Paul speaks of holding fast to the traditions. I am a firm believer in what we call the old time religion. The faith of the apostles, the faith delivered once for all to the saints. The Bible, inspired, authoritative word of God. Paul says, so then, brothers, stand firm in the traditions that you were taught by us, either by a spoken word or by a letter. First Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand at, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
First, 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, he says to young Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. We are to contend for the word of God by carefully clinging to it with tenacity, with earnestness, with fervor. First John 2, 24, 26 let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. John says, listen, hold fast to what you know to be true from the word of God. So we contend for the faith by, first of all, vigorously holding to the cardinal tenets of the faith that has been delivered to us. Here's a second way, and we're winding down. We contend for the faith, beloved, by critically and cautiously assessing all that poses as being Christian. We contend for the faith by critically and cautiously assessing all that poses as being Christian in the context of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Back in Matthew 24, Here's what he said to his disciples, verses 3 to 5. He, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. That's happening now. This is the first John 4, 1 through 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I want you to listen the remainder of the verses, verses 5 and 6. Because this is critical. This is one of the ways we know and we can distinguish the false preachers, the false professors of the faith. Listen to what the Apostle John says as he calls on us to be discerning, to be critical. He says this. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Let me translate this. These are the ones who are going to be called on CNN as spokesperson for the church. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Verse 6, we are from God Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let me say this. Read through this book. Read through the Bible. And one of the things you'll note, you see, is that the true ministers of the word of God, those who hold, who hold true to the word of God, they are typically in the minority saying one thing, which is the truth, but on the other side is the majority. 
they are the, they are cultural Christians, cultural expressions of Christianity that appeals to the culture that lines up with with, with, with whatever government that is antithetical to Christ. And he says, you know them by that. They don't champion truth. They don't champion righteousness. In the third place, finally, we contend for the faith by communicating it with clarity and conviction. By proclaiming it. We're to contend for the faith, not just polemically combating error. But by positive proclamation of the truth as spelled out in the word of God. This we do. We need to do it. How? Forthrightly. We need to do it unapologetically. We need to do it uncompromisingly. We need to do it unambiguously. There's a kind of preaching today that hardly deserves to be called preaching. Presentations, we might call them, that are more motivational pep talks. They lack the ring of divine authority. They aim at nothing and they accomplish nothing. They soft-pedal sin. They are afraid to touch issues, core issues that they need to touch on. It's a kind of tame, limp, effeminate preaching that tickles people's fancies and sends them to a Christless Eternity. I'll tell you this, I'm not into the game by God's grace of being popular or likable or appealing as a preacher. The important thing I want to know, my friends, by the grace of God is this, and I know that you are for this. We want to be those who are sticklers for God's truth, who seek nothing but the honor and glory of God. Let God be true at every man. A liar. And one of these days, I'm telling you this, one of the things that drives a preacher of the word of God, you see, is this. It is the understanding that one of these days we are going to stand before God. We're going to have to give an account. And we have no excuse that we fear this and we fear that. We are to be clear, we are to be compelling, we are to be cogent, we are to speak with, with authority, we are to speak with conviction, the truths of the word of God. Today we need to proclaim the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, realizing that it is the means ordained by God to bring about conviction of sin and true saving conversion. May God help us to that end. May we assiduously contend for the faith. May we not fall for political correctness. May we not fall for that which is popular and appealing. May we strive for nothing but the honor and the glory of God as we exalt his word in our lives by lip and life proclaiming the word of the living God. You are not saved, my friends. Listen, you are saved by this word, by faith in the gospel, by faith in Jesus Christ. We are sanctified, we are saved by this word, we are sanctified by this word, and we are to live in this word. May God help us to that end, for his name's sake.
Amen.